0: So we are uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians in our sermon series, and it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his church plants in a city called Corinth, uh, which was sort of a uh, very bustling commercial city, sort of uh, mid-peninsula uh, in, in Greece. And the question, really, of the book of Corinth, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, The question that is guiding our sermon series is a very practical one. What is it like to live out faith? Uh, The Christians in Corinth had come to faith. Uh, They declared themselves followers of Jesus. Uh, They had a powerful uh, encounter uh, with the Holy Spirit when Paul was in that city. They have matured for a few years. But they are struggling with living it out in a daily way, living it out in the world. What is it like to live out faith together? That's sort of the question that guides the writing of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which was a church probably sincere in faith, but very messy in all other ways. It was a very tumultuous, morally confused, argumentative, immature church uh, in a lot of ways. I don't know if you can relate, Blue Water Mission, but uh, maybe you can gather some practical lessons from it. What is it like to live out faith together? Basic to the idea of the life of faith, I think, is the notion uh, that there is a deeper and freer and better way to live, right? If you adopt the life of faith, one of the things that you presume is that there's just a better way of going about life. Uh, there's a better you out there than the one that you have lived so far. There's a better you than you might think. There is a higher you, not a lower you. There is a a you that is more powerful for good, more influential for good in the world uh, than the you that exists uh, prior uh, to your life of faith. Thanks, Eddie. Um, And yes, there is probably a better behaved you than the one that would exist independent of your life of faith. One of the first questions that we grapple with as we try to live out faith together is, well, you know, what's the best way to behave? What what is the moral life? Or if you wanna get right down to brass tacks, um, what's sin and what's not? What is the right way to do things and what is the wrong way to do things? And how does that relate to our life with God and uh, the grace and forgiveness that he shows us. One of my uh, favorite stories to tell from, um, from uh, my mission uh, work uh, internationally uh, was from this day where I was hiking uh, with some local missionaries way out in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Northern Thailand. I mean, we were, we were out, out in the sticks, right? There were no roads. We were walking along these little paths in, in the mountain forests, and uh, tucked away uh, in the hills was this very isolated uh, Buddhist what? This temple, way out there, isolated from everything. And this Buddhist temple uh, would, would gather monks, often orphaned children, from you know, the mountains around. And while we were hiking down this mountain path near this temple, we bumped into this, uh, this little Buddhist monk, and he was probably 16, 17, 18 years old, it looked like, and, and he was just aghast when he saw us. He was aghast to see uh, a white man, and uh, I began speaking to him through uh, the interpreter that was hiking with us, and, uh, and he found out that I was uh, not only a Christian, but, but a Christian minister, and his eyes got big as saucers, and he said, I need to ask you something. I have heard about Christians. I have heard about the Christian God. Is it true, he said, that you can do anything you want and God just forgives you. Uh, He said, excuse me, I made him repeat his question. Yes, is it true? Uh, Your God forgives. You can do anything you want and God forgives you. I'm very confused, he said. (laughs) Uh, And I just thought it was a fascinating encounter. This little guy, never met a Christian in his life. Out in the middle of nowhere, had no encounter with the faith. All he had were rumors about faith in Jesus. But the one question he was certain about had to do with forgiveness and grace. Uh, What struck him, I think, was a great question about morality. Uh, Given a God who forgives... Given a God who is eager to show grace, which is what he understood from the rumors, why should you behave well at all? I mean, what, what would you strive for in terms of righteousness? This is a very live question, particularly for a Buddhist monk whose entire life was discipline and striving for detachment and transcending the world and stuff like that. So do you have a God who, who, uh, who loves you and is gracious and forgives you for anything, why bother to behave good? I walked away from that thinking, that's a great question. I mean, in some ways, if you just kind of came to God in a fresh way, that would be the question. If you were coming from a different religion, Buddhism or Islam, for instance, which we talked about earlier today. If God forgives, why bother to avoid sin? Um, I remember... uh, asking that question from time to time when I was a kid uh, until the adults in, in churches convinced me to shut up and go away. <laughs> Basically, I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, you know, we, we avoid sin. We ask God to forgive us of our sins. God always forgives, right? Right. God is gracious. He always forgives. Uh, then why should I repent? You know, why, why should I tell people to avoid sin? Um, and, and, and almost always the answer I got was well, when you repent dot 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 you have to mean it otherwise it doesn't count and God doesn't forgive you they hardly ever went to that last bit about God not forgiving but, but basically that was the, the grand theological instruction if, if you're going to put sin out of your life uh, and, and just rest in God's forgiveness and grace you've got to mean it you've got to be sincere, right? Anybody hear that question when you were young, impressionable in Sunday school? Anybody, anybody hear that explanation now? You have to mean it. And maybe some of you still live there. You know, I'm kind of struggling with sin, but I really want to mean it. And do I mean it? And am I sincere? And if I'm not, does God forgive me? The problem for me was that when I, when I read the Bible, and that, that's what I did when I was a kid. I read the Bible, which is a habit that gets you into a lot of trouble generally. And certainly when you were a very independent child, in churches that did not know you very well the problem with meaning it meaning your repentance is that when peter asked jesus hey how many times should i forgive my brother when he sins against me certainly you know there's there's some reasonable limit there's some reasonable measure to this grace that you keep talking about jesus and what does jesus say he says well you need to forgive your brother not just seven times but 77 times seven times which is very symbolic number in other words you need to forgive your brother Always, no matter what. Well, if my brother sins against me 77 times, seven times, and says, oops, sorry, he doesn't really mean it, does he? And yet I'm obligated to always forgive him. So that's very bothersome. And then you get strange stories, like in Mark chapter 2, Matthew chapter 9, it's the story of, of when the four friends brought their paralyzed friend and, you know, dug a hole in some poor guy's roof and lowered the friend in front of Jesus. You remember that story? Because the crowd was so thick. And it says when Jesus saw their faith, which is to say the faith of the the four friends, he says to the guy lying on the mat, your sins are forgiven. He just out and out forgives him point blank without any conversation, no repentance, no asking for forgiveness. Jesus just boom, 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 forgives willy-nilly. And then to prove that he's a that he does that with authority. He heals the guy miraculously, and, and he stands up and walks away. Jesus took any excuse to forgive people. You know, he didn't even wait for them to ask for forgiveness. He didn't even wait for their repentance. And it gets even crazier when he's hanging on the cross, right? People are killing him. They are mocking him. They are Jeering at him, they're they're flinging insults at him as he's in his death moments. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I beg to differ. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were killing him. They were killing him with glee, with vindictiveness. And he said, "Yeah, but they don't really see the whole picture. So you know, Father, let him off this time. They didn't really." Ask for forgiveness, let alone mean it. You know, they were sincerely trying to kill the Son of God. I mean, forgiveness in the kingdom of God is, is almost perversely easy to get. God will take any excuse to forgive us. 77 times 7. Forgiveness is really not the issue. It's not the thing that you need to worry about. So why avoid sin in the first place, if God's not holding stuff against you, if He's that big of a forgiver, then you know why? Why repent? I've preached on this before. A couple answers that might be in your head is well, one, sin isn't good for me, uh, which is true. You know, sin uh, will not keep God from you, but it may well keep you from God. It may corrupt your mind. It may corrupt your soul. It may cause you to to shrink away and to avoid God, which would be bad business. But there's another way of answering that question. Why should you avoid sin, O Christian? Uh, Because you have a different purpose in life. Your purpose, your calling, involves you living free of it. And that's Paul That's Paul's favorite way uh, to talk about it. Now, as I said, the early church in Corinth had some serious issues, uh, many of them moral. One of them we've talked about already. They were a divisive and quarrelsome and argumentative church. There were all these divisions, needless, needless divisions in in the church body in Corinth, and and Paul has spent a few chapters talking about that. Uh, Secondly, uh, among other things, the church in Corinth was taking their moral cues from their local culture. They were sort of living down to the morality of the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded them. And they were incorporating some popular sexual moralities into their church, specifically. They were taking their cues on sexual morality from the surrounding Greco-Roman culture, which, let me tell you, in in, uh, the first century was wild and licentious. you know, Greco-Roman culture of the first century A.D. was made the 60s look pedestrian. Uh, those guys were really out there. Um, and uh, but they, were, they were sort of living down uh, to the sexual morality uh, of their culture. And, and they were doing it, at least in part, due to their freedom in Christ. You know, there is grace, there is grace, we are not under the law, we are not people of rules, and one of the ways they celebrated that is by just partying in crazy ways, uh, and, and sort of justifying it, celebrating it. Uh, they would say, who's to actually say what's right and wrong anyway? It's not really about the rules, uh, that was uh, popular justification uh, in the church in Corinth, evidently. Who does it really hurt? You know, stuff like that. Uh, What is the ultimate moral standard anyway? Why do we even need to worry about that? We are free. We are free people. Uh, In this, I think their church and their culture was a lot like our church and our culture today as some of the things that uh, the church in America uh, struggles with today. Uh, And in that light, we go to the Bible study. Uh, You will find scriptures on the uh, back of your program from 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. To set this up, I want to read to you, uh, not in your program, but just um, from a scripture, the very end of chapter 4. Uh, This sort of sets up Paul's discussion on morality in Corinth. This This is how he leaves it at the end of chapter 4. He says, some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not going to come to you. But I will come to you, and very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how arrogant, uh, how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip, or in love and with a gentle spirit? Paul was capable of being an imposing father figure when he needed to me. said, yeah, yeah, you guys are talking about that. You've got your moral and philosophical justifications. Pretty soon I'm going to show up, and I will show up with power. What kind of power was he talking about? Well, they had seen Paul perform lots of miracles and cast out demons and basically throw down in the supernatural power of the kingdom of God. And here, Paul is actually using that as a bit of a threat. I will show up. We will manifest the power of the kingdom in your midst, and we will see who's a fancy talker and who's a kingdom person. Ta-da. Paul is cool. I like that. You like that? Yeah. Snaps to Paul? Yeah. Come on. Every parent with rebellious children loves that passage. You kind of see who has the power and you have to talk. Um, all right, getting on then, picking up the scripture in your program, excerpted uh, from chapter 5 and uh, chapter 6. <clears throat> After threatening a little bit, Paul lays into them. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife incest. And you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Okay, so a lot of implications here. Uh, the One of the situations in Corinth, whether they had a guy sleeping with his father's wife, whether it was his direct biological mother, I don't know, but nasty business. Not right. Can we agree that's a little weird? Not right. Kind of unwholesome. Paul says, You know, even in the culture at large, that would give people some serious pause. But you're doing it in the church, and you are proud, which sort of tells us that there was kind of a justification going on. We are free. We are free from the rules. We can do what we want. And there's a certain sort of sexual thrill that comes with breaking taboos. Uh, And that was really uh, popular around the Greco-Roman world in that day. So they're doing it in church. And, and they're proud. There are these people in the church justifying that we can do what we want, you know. And Paul says, no, uh, far better that you had just separated yourself from this sort of behavior. Um, uh, he goes on, I wrote to you in my letter, he's talking about a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Uh, in that case, you would have to leave this world. You know, don't judge people outside the church. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister inside the church, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunker, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So he's talking about judging inside the church, judging among ourselves. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? No, 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 that's not what we are about. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. He'll take care of all of that. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's your job. Serious. Skipping ahead now to chapter 6. Paul begins to talk about what sort of the philosophies of Corinth, different ways they were thinking. He says this. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he unites himself with a prostitute? He's probably talking about temple prostitution, a sort of religious rite they had that was rather grisly. Uh, Is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee then from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? This is where we get that phrase. This is a temple of the Spirit. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Paul states uh, the problem, uh, not just that there is sexual immorality in the church, but they have just come up with a very strange way of justifying it, you know, we are free from the rules, we can do what we want, we can break taboos, you know, let's go for it. Not a problem, by the way, that was peculiar to the church in Corinth. Evidently, it was a problem in a lot of Paul's church plants uh, throughout the Greco-Roman world. Uh, He addressed it in several of his uh, epistles. Uh, This idea that because we're not under the law, because God forgives, because there's grace in the universe, we can basically do what we want. It's okay. We don't have to be all that serious about our behaviors Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 6 of his epistle to them. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means, he says. And then he goes on to clarify why. He He was constantly fighting this mindset. Because God forgives, because God is really gracious, Christians got lackadaisical in their righteousness. They got lackadaisical and lazy about their moral behavior. And Paul would have to highlight that all the time. Like, no, 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 no. You know, don't let grace lead you into deeper sin. Why should we not sin? Why should we not use grace to sin? That was a a very frequent question in the churches of the day. It was the question of my little Buddhist monk in the mountains of Thailand as well. An obvious question, one that seeps into our consciousness. Um, uh, What attitude then should we have uh, about uh, sinfulness, unrighteousness uh, among uh, Christians? Well, Paul addresses that in verses nine through 13, uh, chapter five. We should be quite serious about sin. Uh, in our midst, Paul said to the point of, if a brother or sister is being pretentious, is which is to say, is pretending to be a, a zealous follower of Jesus but living a lifestyle that is manifestly immoral, kick him out. Ouch! I mean that that's fairly serious, is it not? He's he's clear as he as he amplifies. Uh, the explanation that we don't kick him out because, you know, we're all um, high and mighty and uh, uptight about sin itself, right? We know he's not saying that because he says out in the world, you know, don't, don't separate yourself uh, from sin in the world at all. You know, I'm not, I'm not judging the world. I'm not talking about sin out there outside of the church, you know. You, you shouldn't go around judging people on the street. You shouldn't separate from the unclean people who don't believe in Jesus. That would be nonsense, he says. That's, that's not our job. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about people inside the church who are pretending to care about their calling in Jesus. If people are f- saying they're following Jesus but living in the muck, you know, eventually you're gonna have to underscore that in some dramatic way. And Paul says pointedly, expel the, moral, the immoral brother. Kick them out. It's, it's better to separate someone from fellowship than it is to kind of let that cancer fester without comment. You know, let, let the mindset bubble up in the church that we well, really don't have to be all that serious about righteousness. We're people of grace, after all. Ah, that's that's deep trouble, Paul says. And you'd be better off kicking them out uh, in order to make your point. You know, not to uh, you know, hopefully consign them to hell, but to correct them. To call attention to the issue, you're gonna have to crack the whip, if it comes right down to it, uh, Paul says. Let's not pretend that you're serious enough to be in the family of God if you're behaving in that fashion. Let's not pretend. That's not, that's not truth. That does not set a good example for anyone. That does not showcase Jesus to the world. That does not set a good example for the children. This is silly. So, better you go. That's what Paul uh, is saying. Okay, then, if Paul's that serious about it, why? Uh, what's going on that we should behave so seriously. And Paul cycles back to it in, in chapter 6 um, and goes a bit deeper uh, in the last half of the Scripture on, on your page 6, 12 through 20. Uh, the first thing he does is he differentiates between uh, uh, legalism and health. Uh, it's not about the law, according to Paul. Sin and righteousness, it's not really about the law. It's about your health. It's about your freedom. It's about your strength, uh, as he puts it. Uh, The passage begins in verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul says, What's going on there in that verse? That, incidentally, is a verse that, depending on what translation of the Bible you read, is going to be translated in wildly various ways. Uh, Translators struggle with it uh, because, uh, I think, because of the line, I have the right to do anything. That makes theologians uncomfortable. Right? To do anything? Is Paul saying, is Paul making that declaration? Is Paul saying, I have the right to do anything? Or is he paraphrasing what the Corinthians say? Uh, The new NIV puts the phrase, I have the right to do anything, in quotations. I have the right to do anything, you say. Uh, But then the second phrase, they take out of quotations. But not everything is beneficial. Uh, There are no quotations in ancient Greek, so it, it it might read like this. You say I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. That's what you say. Um, It's a little bit confusing, Uh, but I think no matter how you translate it, where you put the quotation marks, how you read the ancient Greek, Paul is differentiating between the right to do anything and whether or not the things you do are beneficial. And he's suggesting that that's a better way to think about it. Why are you even thinking about what you have the right to do? Why are you even thinking about rules and and loopholes? which is what we think about when we think about rules, right? If you have a legal mindset, if you come to me and say, you know, those of you who are young and beginning to date, how far is too far? Look, as soon as you ask that question, you are in the wrong territory. You know, you'll will, you will get an interesting response from me uh, if you ask that question. Uh, it's, it's not about what you can get away with, it's about what's good for you? What makes you strong? And if you want to be relational about it, what makes your relationship strong? You know, how do you maximize health? Not what can you get away with. Uh, Paul didn't want to talk about that. Uh, Jesus never wanted to talk about it. I don't particularly want to talk about it either. You, sure, sure, you're free from the law, but that doesn't mean everything is good for you. Implication, mature Christian, think about what's good for you. Think about living up to your calling. Think about living up to the strength that you should as opposed to getting away with stuff. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And this is one of Paul's favorite ways to talk about sin. What's the problem with sin? The problem with sin is that it's addictive. As soon as you engage in it, it begins to take over you. This was the first lesson we ever got about sin in Scripture. Uh, The first big lesson... uh, Well, you could say that the fall was the first big lesson about sin, but the first commentary uh, was in the life of Cain, right? Cain is contemplating murdering his brother Abel, and the Lord says to Cain, you know, what are you doing? Be careful. Sin is crouching at your door, and it seeks to master you, God said to him, but you must master it. As soon as you let sin in the door, it's not that God gets really angry and he's going to lower the hammer on you, the first thing that happens is that the sin begins to master you, just like a drug. It's like a really, really addictive drug. It it becomes part of your life in a way that is very hard to reverse on your own. You become hollowed out. You become a puppet. Your brain becomes sick. You can't even think correctly about it anymore And it all happens to you before you even realize what's going on. That's what sin does. And that's how Paul likes to talk about it. He said, sure, you can talk about what you can get away with. Me, I'm going to talk about what masters me and what I master. I will be a slave to nothing. I choose how I behave. It's my willfulness that carries the day. I am free. And if you let sin in your life, by definition, you are no longer free. It begins to enslave you. Piece by piece. And as long as you have it in your life, there's very little that you can do about that. Um, The issue isn't about what you're allowed to do. It's about what's good for you. So change your paradigm. Change your thinking. There's another philosophy mentioned here. It's a little bit confusing. Let me unpack it a little bit. Uh, He goes on to say, You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Uh, Again, it's unclear where the quotation marks uh, should be there, Uh, but there's this philosophy. The stomach for food and food for the stomach. Paul clarifies, uh, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, this is what I think is being said, just as you would say, look, the stomach is designed for food. So what do we do? We give the stomach food. It's just biology. They didn't really have that word back then, but that, that was, that's what they were saying. Look, it's genetic, right? The stomach craves food. You give food to the stomach. It's, it's in our design. Therefore, it cannot be wrong. Dot, 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 you know. Parts of our body are designed for sex. There is an innate sex drive in me. It's just biological. It's just my design. So, of course, I'm going to satisfy it. Right? It's genetic. There's nothing wrong with honoring the design of the body in that way. Right? Today, we've taken that philosophy and we've perfected it at a whole new level. Right? Because uh, our culture teaches us to be genetic determinants. Um, it's just we can't help it. we are programmed when it gets right down to it, we are just robots. they don't say that, but when it gets right down to it, that's what the philosophy says and even back then, this is again first century a d Paul was grappling with this uh this this pridefulness right this this excuse this this rationalization uh and he and uh he says uh the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He said, no, 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 no. Let me correct you. There is nothing that is purely biological. Uh, He didn't say it that way, but that's kind of what he meant, I think. He's he's sort of correcting this idea. There was this Greek idea that a human being was divided into parts. There was body, mind, and spirit. It was a very Greek idea. in our culture today, we have preserved that idea a great deal. Uh, in fact, most of us would not even question it. There is a physical part of us. Uh, there is a mental part of us. There's a brain. Uh, and there's a spiritual part of us that is separate from those things. No, there's not. There are no separation. You are a being. Physical, mental, spirit, it's all, it's all one you. There, that, that's a false, arbitrary division. Right? It's it's not true. You are a unit. And the way that you use your body has spiritual consequences. What you do spiritually influence your body. You know, It's, it's all of a piece. That's how the Hebrews thought of it. Uh, and that's how we should think of it as well. Your body is the Lord's, just as your soul, just as your spirit is the Lord's. Don't be silly. Be silly. We... We're all physical, we're all spiritual, we're physio-spiritual, spirit-physical. I don't know, what's the word? Anybody good with words? We're just human. We're just children of God. Uh, we are all of a single piece. Uh, so don't, don't buy into that. If anything, Paul says <clears throat> in that light, sexual sin is more problematic than most kinds of sin because uh, you engage, with, uh, with your body, the two become one flesh. You join in a way, you join with someone else in a way that is very deep when you commit sexual immorality. Uh, and then you carry that with you uh, because what you've done is that your, your body no longer belongs to just you. You have joined it uh, with someone else or several someones. Uh, and that's very complicated, you know, basically says more complicated than other kinds of sin. Uh, in short, how to summarize all of this. Um, I think Paul's big counter argument uh, to living a life of sin has to do with our sacredness, our holiness. Uh, He finishes up here by saying, "'Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God, uh, in previous chapters, if you've been here previous weeks, he describes the church, the assembly, as a temple of God. It's in our midst that God dwells. So, too, your body is like a little temple of God. It houses the Spirit of God in you. That's your calling. You are set aside as the temple is set aside. Right? If there's a temple in your culture, there are things that you don't do in that temple. You understand that that is a special place. Well, conceive of your bodies, conceive of your life, conceive of yourself in the same way. You belong to God. You have been set aside. You have been made sacred by God. That's what it means when we talk about Jesus buying you at a price. He has set you aside into holiness. Live up to that. Be special. Be holy. Be different. I'm always fond of saying that the Hebrew word from holiness, for holiness literally means Weird unique, peculiar. Be different than the world around you. Live different. Your purpose, your calling is to live in a different way, in a sacred way. This is a constant theme in 1 Corinthians. Uh, You have a calling to be something truly unique uh, in the world. So why would you use the grace that God gives you to behave in a common, worldly way? That makes no sense, that's insane. Uh, If that's how you think, then you'd be better off leaving the church, frankly. Because all you're going to do is destroy the church. Sin is not who you are, so don't flirt with it. Discover who you really are. That's what Paul is saying. And Paul implies, if you've been following carefully, that a life of sin takes away your power. Remember, he introduces this discussion on morality by saying, I will come to you, not with a bunch of talking, I will come to you with some supernatural power. Right? His implicate is, you know, his, he's intimating that because he has lived differently. Because he does not engage in these fruitless philosophies. Um, the kingdom of God isn't about words, it's not about fancy moral debating, it's not about politics, it's not about cultural positioning, it's about power. It's about living in such a way that the power of the Spirit flows through you. And a sacred thing always has more supernatural power than a common thing. What you set aside for God, he makes wondrously powerful for you. Write it down. It's always true. Always true. Paul would go on to begin uh, to paint a picture of healthy sexuality beginning in the next chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. And we'll pick up some of that. Uh, Next week, where he starts to give more positive pictures uh, of how to live out your sexuality. Um, But let us carry the point for the day. Live up to the real you. Be sacred and thereby become very powerful. I read a recent survey that shows that 65% of teens and 20-somethings in the American church can be identified as sexual atheists meaning that they confess Jesus, they worship God, they affirm scripture, and they believe that they can pretty much sleep around. Sex has been exempted from moral categories uh, among younger people in the church today. Maybe among some older people too, let's, let's be honest. Why? Well, because we take cues from our culture. You know, uh, we have bought into the idea that, look, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, it's just biology anyway, you know, I mean, it's natural, and it's just a natural expression, whatever we say, we have totally bought into that, 65% uh, of the time. Now, given the numerous instructions on moral behavior in scripture, that would seem to be impossible. I mean, how could you follow Jesus, affirm the scripture, worship God, and 65% of the time in the church, just kind of be, hey, anything goes. Not anything, but, you know, you clean it up a little bit, but you, know, you, you behave as seems natural uh, to you uh, sexually. We humans, we Christians have a powerful ability to rationalize away moralities that we find inconvenient. And, and the world today makes it really, really, really easy. It's just a computer click away. And the notion of grace can sometimes actually make that easier. Right? Because God forgives, because we know not to be too uptight about the rules. And so what we do is that we use our freedom to sin. Uh, We learn to put the word wrong in quotation marks. Yeah, it's wrong, but dot, dot, dot. Um, Because, you know, we're free. It's about grace. And the most important thing is not to judge anyway. And it's enough to be loving and respectful. You don't need to be strict and uptight. Uh, what's really going on is that the church is taking cues from the world and the consequence is that we lose our power. We no longer look different and we certainly do not have supernatural power to accomplish the sorts of things that we need to accomplish. Why? Because we're not living up to our own sacredness. We do not see the value of righteousness anymore. All we're trying to do is figure out what we can get away with or, or have God not be mad at us. We have not pursued the positive goal, which is the power, the influence that righteousness brings. Sin destroys sacredness. It's not that God will get you if you sin, although there is a judgment to come. There is a judgment to come, and we all need to be sober about that. But the most immediate problem is that sin disables you, hollows you out. It makes you powerless and pointless, So why would you flirt with it? Why would you go there? Who wants to be powerless and pointless in the world? Better you not even participate in the church because this place is all about being powerful and purposeful. That's really what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Uh, I regret my sin whenever I lack the power to heal someone. Do a lot of supernatural ministry. People bring me suffering, loved ones, sick little children, and I try to do what Jesus called us to do. They will lay their hands on sick people and they will become well. I try to do that in obedience to the teachings of Christ. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that is in me. And very frequently I fail. That's when I regret my sin because at that moment I feel powerless and pointless. I think I should probably be able to do better. If not for this particular individual, then at least for more individuals, you know? I should be an influential person in the Jesus way, in the Jesus manner, and, and often I am not. And that's what drives me to my knees in repentance, frankly. I don't think I'm living up to uh, my sacredness. Uh, So what I do sometimes is that I I fast for power, as Jesus did. Before Jesus started his ministry, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He did not eat for 40 days. And during that time, he was tempted by Satan. What he was doing is he was triumphing over his flesh. There's nothing wrong with eating, right? Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. But he took his appetites and he set it aside as if to say, no, it's it's my... appetite for righteousness, that is the most important thing. And then he resisted temptation, he conquered sin. And then the scripture says, it was then that he returned to Galilee in power. Uh, so every, every so often, what I will do is I will fast for power. I need, I need more sacredness and power in my life, so I will go, you know, some days without eating. And invariably, after about three or four days, what happens to me is that I stop thinking about being grand in power and instead uh, I'm consumed with uh, how sinful I am (laughs) you know I I feel how my flesh my sinfulness is choking me out Um, you know it's as if uh, God is saying to me "Uh, sure you want to minister like Jesus be serious about righteousness avoid sin all of it even that petty stuff you know that anger and the complaining and all of that stuff that tends to creep up on me uh, so frequently. I can tell when I'm not as clear in my head. I can tell when I'm not as powerful as I should be. It's an occasion for repentance, so I need to decide beforehand who I am and how I'm going to behave. You know, Jesus went out, he hugged lepers, and he hung out with the most sinful people that he could find. He was not scared of being around sin. Jesus had a righteousness that contaminated the world. Right? He was not afraid of being contaminated by sin. He was righteous in a way that contaminated sin. His righteousness went out into you know, dead flesh, into broken lives, and it brought the kingdom. It brought order. It brought healing. That's how righteous I would like to be, to be a holy influence in the world. Um, That's how the church should be. And we should be so holy that we can't help but influence the world around us. People should walk in here and have righteousness seep into their bones. It should contaminate them because this is a holy place filled with holy people. People should walk in here and they should feel freer. They should feel more powerful to change just by being around us. And when we fool around with sin, we destroy our community's ability to do that for people. We throw away our power. Just throw it away. And we become normal, average. Um, We love you, you know, no matter how sinful uh, you are. Uh, God loves you, which is the more important thing. Forgiveness is easy to get. In the name of Jesus, you are forgiven even now. God's grace is there for you and it is abundant. You are totally accepted. Uh, But, you know, if you're cultivating those secret sins in your life, then you have hurt us you have compromised the temple. You have made it a less holy place. And, you know, since we're together in this, we all suffer together because of that, you know? Serious business, you've compromised our power. And by extension, you've hurt the people who show up looking for righteousness and power in this place. It's no wonder that Paul gave the Corinthians heck about this. Scripture says, as the church is the temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells, so too our bodies are vessels for the Holy Spirit. We are living stones, right? We are a part of this together. Um, So, what do we do with all of this? The carry-away point, I think, today as we end. um, I would like to suggest uh, repentance, which is a great word. Repent. Who loves that word? Okay, nobody loves that word. It is a great word, Uh, the Greek word for repent means to think differently. Of course, if you think differently, you ultimately live differently. But to think about things in a new way, to change your head, change your mind, think differently about things. Number one, think differently about God, because God is forgiving. God is more loving. He is more gracious than you think he is. God is gracious and forgiving to such an extent that he would rather die than make a big issue of your sins. I think is a fair way to put it. Forgiveness, getting right with God, is fantastically easy. Crazy easy. You can do that in a moment right now. Two, after that, live up to your calling. Because he has set you aside as a sacred vessel, calling you to be a person of difference, a a person of righteousness, and thereby power in this world. You would not be wise to play around with that. If you're gonna follow Jesus, live up to your calling. You can be forgiven, but still miss out on the kingdom of God in your life. You know, you can can get in as one who passes through the flames, as Paul said in our passage from last week, but live a life of pointlessness and powerlessness. You you don't want to be that, you know? Be something more. It starts with the decision to take God's instructions seriously and to live differently. You're going to stop taking your cues from the world. You're going to start taking your cues from Jesus Christ, who's your Lord, who was serious enough to give his life for this. Uh, Now, it's one thing if you're confused about right or wrong. You really actually don't know what sin is and what righteousness is. It's cool if you're actually a seeker. You're trying to figure it out. Jesus was totally excited about seekers, someone who came with open questions like, hey, let me investigate this. Let me explore. Let me figure it out as I go. And if that's you, that's awesome, you know go ahead and, and figure it out take your time hang out you know seekers always have the place of honor in any fellowship of Jesus but many of you are beyond that right you kind of know what's right and what's wrong you know what righteousness is you know you may have talked yourself into accommodating this sin in your life but 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 you know right uh, you know right from wrong pretty well and if Jesus were in the house today If he were occupying you throughout the day, you'd live differently. Uh, And if that's you, repentance. Think differently about God. He's not there with a hammer, he's there with an offer. He'd like to give you a life of power and purpose, he'd like to make you a sacred vessel. Aren't you tired of feeling not so sacred? Let's pray. I get tired of feeling not so sacred Lord I uh, I certainly get tired of feeling powerless and pointless so I reach out to you this morning Lord we reach out to you and we give you space we give you leave to be not only the God who forgives uh, but the Lord who leads we make you master Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall upon us, and I pray that you would do what you do. I pray that you would indwell every individual. I pray that you would make our bodies sacred, that you would make our beings sacred to you. Now, it's hard to live up to that, Lord, but we are helped by your presence. So I pray uh, that you would be present with us this morning, that you would make what is common into something that is transcendent and holy. Let your spirit come. Let your kingdom come, Lord, and then let your will be done perfectly in our lives.